Friends, it's a privilege to be your pastor. As a minister of the gospel, I'm always wrestling with what does God want me to say? What is the word of the Lord for his people in particular seasons with all that we're dealing with? Last week, I felt the need to share some remarks on the Capitol Hill event of January 6th. And I've become convinced through some conversations this last week that my remarks were true, but they were not pointed or specific enough. And one of the reasons for that is that the events of January 6th were clothed in the symbols of Christianity. What we saw, though, was not Christian. It runs counter to the claims of Jesus Christ. Christian nationalism is a form of political idolatry. It's making politics your God and fitting everything else into that, instead of making Jesus our God and filtering everything through his kingdom lens. So what we saw, uh, people holding Jesus saves signs while chanting, hang Mike Pence. How does that happen? Now, some claim that Antifa was involved. It's just not true. <laughs> people have been arrested and there's been pictures and inv investigation shows no evidence for this claim. Some claim that the election was stolen and that's not true either. Numerous recounts and legal proceedings have shown that there's not sufficient evidence for the claim. And I mention these things not because I want to speak to politics. It scares the daylights out of me speaking to politics. I speak these things because these false claims are only fueling the pain and division in our country. And they're leading some of our brothers and sisters into actions that contradict the purposes of Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week how this moment, I think, calls for godly lament. We need to grieve how nationalism and racism and triumphalism have been wedded to the name of Jesus Christ. It's not okay. Now, don't get me wrong, none of us are perfect. <laughs> We're all learning, myself included. We all have blind spots. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my goodness, do we all need forgiveness in Christ and renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we're being presented, though, as a church with an opportunity to name our sins and repent of them. Part of the reason why I love being an Anglican, we start with confession and forgiveness at the beginning of every service. Some Christians have merged the call to follow Jesus with the call to follow a particular political leader or political power or political party. And we need to repent of that in any form that it comes and reaffirm our commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to follow him alone. I think that's why our gospel reading this morning is such a timely word, because it's about discipleship, it's about evangelism, and it's about the goal of both those things. It brings us back to the core convictions. We're people that are about following Jesus, sharing Jesus with others, and seeing the greatness of Jesus. And so let's start with the call to discipleship. Jesus says, follow me. And in Jesus' day, this call to discipleship came amidst an array of competing voices. There are Pharisees suggesting that the kingdom of God would come through strict obedience and enforcement of the law. There were Essenes who thought that the kingdom of God would come by withdrawing from the sinful world and making sure that they preserved their own personal purity. There were Sadducees who thought that the kingdom of God would come into the world through the kind of attainment and maintaining of political power. And then there were zealots who thought the kingdom of God would come into the world through political revolution and revolt. And Jesus comes into all of them and says, no, 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 no. Let me show you a different way of being human. 
a different way of entering into the kingdom, a different way of being faithful to the Lord. Follow me. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses here evokes the image of a student-teacher relationship. It's not just about learning someone's teaching in this case, but it's about being shaped and formed by the very essence of their person in their life. It's not just about external conformity. It's about internal attachment to the goodness of the teacher. And in the ancient world, a person normally would approach a rabbi and ask to be the rabbi's student. It's kind of like college application process. And the, the rabbi would say yes or no based on his evaluation of the student. But here we see the opposite in effect. The rabbi takes the initiative. The next day, says verse 43, Jesus decided, he resolved to go to Galilee. He found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. John is careful to show us in this moment that this call to discipleship is an act of new creation initiated by Jesus. The Gospel of John loves to echo the book of Genesis. It starts off with those words, in the beginning was the word, echoing the first words of the Bible, in the beginning was God. And then it's no mistake that after the incarnation of the word, John carefully narrates the opening scenes of Jesus' ministry as a seven-day week of new creation, culminating in the changing of water into wine, the great act of new creation. And so by setting this call of discipleship within this first week of new creation, we are invited to see that Jesus' call for us to become his followers is, is, is full of creative life and power. If anyone is in Jesus Christ, says Paul, they are a new creation. You see, in this passage, Jesus doesn't go around aimlessly looking for people that may want to follow him. He chooses those who will be his disciples. It is his gift to them. And his words create and enable and empower their ability to follow him. Now, I think this is good news, friends. I mean, for some of us, this may offend our, our sense of personal autonomy <laughs> to some extent. Jesus comes to us before we ever come to him. But I think it's great news because it means that the resources to follow Jesus do not come from within the follower but from within the one who is being followed. In other words, our relationship to the rabbi rests in the ultimate sense on the rabbi's relationship to us. And I find this so encouraging because this is precisely what we need to sustain us when the life of discipleship and following Jesus becomes difficult and costly. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Echoing these words of Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. And the history of the Christian church bears witness to this. Life was not easy for Paul when he followed Jesus into the jails of Rome. Life was not easy for Augustine when he followed Jesus during the fall of the Roman Empire. Life was not easy for Bonhoeffer when he followed Jesus in the midst of a Nazi-run Germany. <laughs> and life was not easy for Martin Luther King when he followed Jesus amidst a racially segregated America. It may not be easy to follow Jesus now. 
but it's never been easy to follow Jesus. And Jesus does not promise that it will be easy. But this is not the, chat, the path that we have just chosen for ourselves. This is the path that Jesus has set out for us. This is his good and gracious will for our lives. This is what he invites us into. This is what he empowers us for and anoints us with the Holy Spirit for. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. And from this call to follow flows the joy, the overwhelming joy of sharing, of evangelism. Our sharing, says our text, is an extension of our having been found by Jesus and invited to follow him. Think of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was lost, now I'm found. Three times we see this word found show up in our passage. Philip was found by Jesus, John tells us. And now Philip goes to find Nathaniel. And then when Nathaniel, when Philip gets to Nathaniel, he says, we have found him of whom Jesus in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's verse 45. And despite Nathaniel's disdain and incredulity for <laughs> anything and anyone that comes from Nazareth, Philip still invites him, come and see, he says in verse 46. And so it's from Jesus to Philip, from Philip to Nathaniel, and from Nathaniel back to Jesus. And so Philip is portrayed as the human link between Jesus and Nathaniel. Yes, we discover later in the passage that Jesus sees and he knows Nathaniel intimately before Philip ever seeks and finds him. But it seems that Philip is the divinely appointed means by which Jesus seeing and knowing will become a personal encounter and a personal faith for Nathaniel. Nathaniel's name literally means God gives or God has given. God the Father here is working through the human person, Philip, to give Nathaniel to Jesus. One can sense the joy and the buoyancy in Philip's voice as he goes to Nathaniel. We found him, we found him, we really, really found him, you got to see this. And here I'm just reminded once again of the simple joy of sharing Jesus with people. This last week, when I was writing down some notes um, in preparation for this sermon, my son Jeremy walked into the room. He crawled on the back of the seat behind me. I said, what are you doing, Daddy? And I said, I'm preparing to tell people about following Jesus. And my son's two years old. And he said, oh, we can follow Jesus, Daddy? And I said, yes. Yes, you can. And then his face kind of lit up, and he got a big smile on his face. He said, really? How? And it just hit me afresh. He's two years old. And just the joy on his face. And the joy of getting to say to somebody, come and see. Come and experience this Jesus. And I'm also reminded in this passage of the simple power of simple invitation. I mean, we live in a culture which assumes that people can be yelled into conviction and yelled into holiness and yelled into transformation, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> One side yells and the other side yells louder and then the other side yells louder and the world is filled with more and more noise and the volume just keeps getting turned up. 
But Philip doesn't play that game with Nathaniel. He says, come and see, and that's all. The rest will be left up to Jesus. Lord Jesus, lay on our hearts the names and faces of those whom you want to seek and find in this season. And Lord Jesus, grant us sensitivity to the ways you may involve us in your saving work. You see, our passage holds before us both the call to discipleship and the joy of evangelism. And then it ends by holding before us the goal of both those things, which is seeing the greatness of Jesus. When Nathaniel meets Jesus, he's astonished by his divine knowledge. He was personally seen and known by Jesus before he ever saw and knew Jesus himself. I mean, I can't help but be reminded of Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all my ways. You saw my unformed substance when I was being created in my mother's womb. Oh, Lord, how majestic are your thoughts. Nathaniel responds to Jesus' personal knowledge with the highest titles he can possibly muster from his learning. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And these are Old Testament titles that are charged with political resonance. I mean, they speak of the long-awaited Davidic king who is expected to come and crush Israel's enemies, liberate them from their oppressors, and finally establish their glory and rule as a world power once and for all. And Jesus' response to these political titles is actually quite striking. He does not deny the titles, but rather he seeks to draw Nathaniel's attention and our attention to greater things. You will see the greatness of Jesus. Verse 51. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. And in the Greek, the you is plural now here. Jesus is not just addressing Nathaniel, but he's addressing all his followers. It's as if Jesus is looking from the pages of scripture directly at us. And he says, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And in this cryptic, mysterious kind of phrase, Jesus draws from symbolism of Genesis 28 and Daniel 7 to make a profoundly subversive statement. <laughs> Drawing upon Genesis 28, Jesus evokes the image of Jacob's ladder. Now, when Jacob was in a dream, he saw a ladder set upon the earth, the top reaching up into heaven, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. And then when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he burst with joy. And he said, really, the Lord is in this place. I did not realize it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so by drawing upon this imagery, Jesus is making a pretty big claim for himself. He's saying that he is the link between heaven and earth, like the ladder in Jacob's vision. He is the house of God. He is the gate of heaven on earth. And then drawing from Daniel 7, Jesus highlights the royal and political implications of this claim. He is the son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. 
Like there's some 17 titles ascribed to Jesus in the first chapter of the book of John, but Jesus only uses one title of himself and it's the son of man. It comes straight from Daniel chapter seven. And the title evokes images of dominion and power. The son of man is given dominion and glory and power and kingship. And the son of man is given homage and service and praise from all peoples and all nations and all languages. He is the cosmic Lord, unrivaled, unparalleled, unthreatened. And then here comes the catch. Jesus takes all this theological, all this royal, all this political expectation upon himself, and then he goes to the cross in the Gospel of John. He goes to the cross. It's no mistake that as Jesus enters into Holy Week in John chapter 12, he brings up this title, Son of Man, numerous times. Because he wants the world to know that his royal coronation is going to involve a crown of thorns. That his divine glory is going to be expressed through a broken and beaten body. That his regal power is going to be displayed through a weakened and bloodied man. Jesus' glory and dominion are revealed as the Son of Man, not through political power grabbing and revolution, but through the power of the cross. It is there and there alone that Jesus saves the world and ushers in his new creation. And that's part of the reason why I think it's so offensive and wrong and hard to stomach when people hold up a Jesus saves sign while shouting, hang someone. Surrounded by symbols of fascism and racism. This is taking the Lord's name in vain. And as Christians and followers of Jesus, we cannot condone that. Because it dishonors that name. And the way that he has chosen to display his glory and his power and his honor. And the way that he has chosen to save the world. We follow a Lord who told Peter that he would be crucified. And when Peter said, no way, Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. We follow a Lord who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane while awaiting his accuser's arrival. And when Peter pulled out his sword to fight, Jesus rebuked him and said, put your sword away. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because Jesus is the son of man who must be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So my dear brothers and sisters, <laughs> honestly, I know I'm worked up here, but I just say this because I think it's the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that whatever happens on Inauguration Day this week, we should reflect the gospel and the life of our Lord Jesus. We should be peacemakers. And we should pursue a peaceful transfer of power. May it be known this week that we are followers of Jesus first and foremost. Not Republicans, not Democrats, not Americans. We are followers of Jesus. And our complete and total allegiance is to him and him alone. We will not support or incite violence of any kind. 
We will not tolerate racism in any form. We will not take the Lord's name in vain for any reason, especially not for political power. So may the Lord have mercy upon us. He loves his church. He is committed to his church. And may he grant us peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.